I'm putting 90% of that lump on number four, right? As as that as the proposition that UAPs represent non-human technology that's physically in our presence, right? That's like the proposition, 90%. The the, the that I wouldn't say on 90% on all of Russia's claims, right? Which which are further down the Bayesian tree, right? Like this it's like like this is like the root claim that UAPs are non-human technology and they're real and they're physically you know in our presence. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Today we are joined by Matt Pines, Director of Security Intelligence at the Krebs Stamos Group. Matt is an incredibly deep thinker who we enjoy learning from on geopolitical and large-scale issues. His powers of deduction are noteworthy. He has a keen ability to simplify problems into their most important constituent parts, the hallmark of a great thinker. In this episode, we temper our last episode's bullishness with Matt's thoughts on what could be some of the negative outcomes for Bitcoin. It's important to completely understand the potential upside and the very real possibility that things don't go the way we expect. Then we turn the guns to the most interesting topic of the moment. You might be wondering, why have we devoted such a large portion of this episode to the UAP topic? The truth is, this is the most legitimate source that has ever come forward with info, and we are genuinely curious about it. We love exploring ideas, and this is an idea worth exploring, in our view. We are fortunate to have Matt on so recently after the David Grush interview. If you aren't aware of this absolutely wild interview with a former highly ranked intelligence officer, we encourage you to check that out. It will be in the show notes. Whatever your opinion is of the UAP or UFO topics, we encourage you to have an open mind and listen to Matt explain how and why this is a topic that has recently surfaced, and how seriously he is taking it. Going into this episode, I was excited to hear Matt's take on it because he has long had an interest in the topic. I was not prepared for Matt to apply such a high probability to its veracity. We are certainly living in some interesting times. Prepare for them to get stranger. Strange times require absolutely bulletproof security. CoinKite has you absolutely covered with the most secure signing device for Bitcoin ever devised. The cold card Mark IV is our device of choice to protect our Bitcoin. And if you have your Bitcoin on an exchange, we would highly encourage you to educate yourself about self-custody and buy a cold card. We promise it is not as difficult as some make it out to be. You can watch a five-minute video and be completely up and running. Use code BCB for 5% off the Mark IV or shop the link in our show notes for discounts at the CoinKite store. Matt, thanks for joining us. Or is it Chris? <laughs> we had this quick story. We we shared numbers on Signal at the conference, and I text the group for some reason having Chris Pines in my head because I'm a Star Trek nerd, I guess. And so I referred to Matt as Chris, and it got a little strange for a minute till he responded in the morning. Was like, oh, it's all cool. But yeah, I was sweating it for a little bit while I was like, man, he must think I'm the biggest asshole in the world. We've spoken for like an hour and a half, and he doesn't even know my name. Like, what a dick. So sorry it's about okay. that, but you were totally gracious about it. Hey, Matt is a is a forgettable name. It's There's like millions of us millennials named Matt. I am the guy, though, that will text the random wrong group, the thing talk, like talking shit about the person in that group, like, and then like, oh, shit, how am I going to recover from this one? As you saw a couple nights ago, Dan and I were supposed to be texting each other about this episode, and then I included you, which wasn't anything bad, but it was just like, God damn it, I always do that. You talk about so. presumptuous, though. Guy does us a yep. solid, Josh, spends hours 
on the show, on email, on signal, and then <laughs> and I can't even Chris. get his fucking name right. I think it happened because we were talking about you. I was I was talking about you. I was like, you know, Matt, this and that. We were on the analyst test together, and Josh was like, oh, shit. I think I texted him and called him Chris. I'm like, you dumb fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Got good OPSEC. You know, you never yep. know much. Uh, how, are, how are you? Give us just a 30-second minute life update. What's going on with you? Yeah, I mean, professionally, um, things are really busy. Um, Director of Security Intelligence at the Krebs Stamos Group, where obviously, you know, our consulting practice is focused on the intersection of geopolitical um, cybersecurity emergence technology risk. So let's just say that uh, that set of issues isn't going away. Um, so yeah, professionally, really busy. It's a small it's a small firm, so we're all sort of grinding. Um, you know, lots of interesting engagements, but you kind of have to wear multiple hats when you're a small company um it's exciting interesting work uh so yeah that's that's where you know 99 of my time is uh is focused on you know those those sorts of interesting problem sets but uh, it's going well um and yeah really uh really engaged in a lot of interesting issues on china questions ai risk management questions emerging technology across the board and business strategy so yeah that's uh that's a little outside of maybe the Bitcoin alien topic we might get into, but that's why I spend most of my time doing. <laughs> yeah, but there are intersections there, I'm sure, are vast and wide. You know, you you can AI could arguably be a alien technology. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, we'll, um, we'll probably get there. Lots of things are possible. Yeah. <laughs> In the giant spectrum of things we would love to chat about, we've had to pare it down, which has been extremely painful for the two of us. But we have two priorities today. Mm-hmm. One big priority is we, and we're dead serious about this. This is not some jokes or hoax, joke or hoax or whatever. We want to talk about the the UAP developments. We'll use the alien word. I threw up the green background here just to kind of channel the you Damn, know. The new word is non-human intelligence. NHI. Okay. We'll get into that. NHI. Before we get into that stuff, though, last time you were on here, we did talk a lot about geopolitics, and we we just hit the tip of the iceberg. We didn't talk a ton about Bitcoin. And one of our biggest priorities in this hour and a half is to have you hit what you view as tangible risks, maybe the bearish side of Bitcoin. Our last episode with Jesse Myers Croesus, we got, dare we say, hyperbolically bullish to some extent. And we we share a lot of that. But Josh and I also have another side of the coin where we're constantly steel manning. We do see vulnerabilities and we never use the word inevitable. So especially with someone with your background, your balance, your research mindset. Why don't you start off this episode giving us some high-level thoughts of how you see Bitcoin here and now in the year 2023 and maybe particular focus on what vulnerabilities you think exist currently? Yes, certainly. Um, I guess I would bucket the set of risks that I would think about into sort of two areas. One would be like endogenous risks to and from Bitcoin and exogenous risks to Bitcoin. Um, so essentially, you know, risks that may emerge as a result of Bitcoin's sort of own development in terms of like br broad, right? Whether it's technical development, the ecosystem of, of stakeholders involved, um, the consensus and meta consensus that underpins um, it as an open software project, sort of emerging monetary protocol. That set of risks and sort of ways that, you know, Bitcoin could go wrong or could stall out or could um, sort of become a victim of its own um, vulnerabilities over time, and then exogenous risks, right? So other actors that, you know, use instruments of power 
that they have at the disposal to um, constrain Bitcoin, limit Bitcoin's um, spread and adoption um, overall. So those are like two big, big buckets of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, so within sort of that like endogenous bucket, I think, you know, you know, think about time scales, right? And think about like risks to Bitcoin, you kind of have to find like, well, what does that mean? Like from what vantage point are you evaluating risk? Um, and like risk in terms of what like outcome, right? So like failure of what kind? Um, when you have, you know, this this thing like this emerging monetary um, uh, phenomenon, right? Like, okay, well, what are your expectations? And so risk might be, we don't meet those expectations, right? Like if someone 10 years ago, their definition of success was it reaches, you know, $500 billion of total market value and it's got adoption by several, you know, million people at least holding like at least one Bitcoin. Sort of like they'd say, okay, well, it's been a success, right? Like that was my definition yep. of success 10 years ago. We've reached that. Everything else is, you know, we'll see what happens and we'll let it ride. Um, so like, you know, it's a matter of like anchoring against expectations and whether you think um, those expectations are going to be realized over a certain time rise. That's like a lot of like sort of like, like prefacing, right? Um, risk is in the eye of, of the beholder, failure is in the eye of, of the beholder. Um, and if your expectations are, it becomes global money the next five years, right? Well, then there's gonna be a lot of things that you would see as risks to that scenario playing out because you have such an extremely high bar for success, right? Like mm. uh, the, the chance of failure against that measure of success is gonna be very high. Whereas if your measure of success is, it sort of slowly, gradually increases in adoption, Maybe it increases in value at a certain percentage point, you know, over the next 10 years. Okay, well, that the scenarios in which that fails or that that scenario has is exposed to risk are, are you know, maybe less less likely. So, again, I'll just sort of bounding the question because I think people sometimes bring in their assumptions over what is the inevitable trajectory of Bitcoin and they sort of reference risks against that. Um, I think sort of where we are now, right, Bitcoin is, you know, certainly an established phenomenon globally. Like there are millions of people that use it. There are millions of people that hold it. There are, you know, major serious capital investments into Bitcoin. Um, So it has now like a foothold in kind of a global ecosystem of existing capital, technical development, users, and also like a public discourse. So that those are things that are hard to like change. Those things have inertia. Those things have, you know, people have status quo bias. People have um, sort of cognitive inertia. They don't just like change their minds overnight. So I would expect, like, all things being equal, like, inertia to take over and it just sort of, you know, I don't expect catastrophic failure, but I also don't expect, you know, some, like, bolt from the blue all of a sudden becomes global money, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's an important point because tempering your expectations is very important. And in order for this to bolt from the blue to see this God green candle that everyone talks about and jokes (laughs) about, that means that on the other side of things, there has to be a cataclysmic problem in the traditional finance system, which is something... (laughs) that I think anyone who actually thinks about this deeply doesn't want to see happen because that's going to be a very negative scenario for everybody across the board, including people that are quote unquote prepared Mm -hmm. holding Bitcoin, because you still have to live in this society. As Jeff Booth has said before, you don't want to be the richest guy in the slums. You know, that's just not a place you want to necessarily be. Yes. And so I would say from where we are now, again, say I would say like the median expectation by 2030, like the risks against that sort of median expectation um, um, in the endogenous domain. I would point to a few things that are you know, things to be you know wary of. Right. One would be consolidation and maybe soft capture of uh, the mining system by G7 nations. Right. So right now, I think at least 50 percent, maybe 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 much more than that 
of the global hash rate exists in G7 countries. Um, and the geopolitical sort of winds are, are blowing in the direction of sort of a techno uh, war between East and West, principally between the G7 and Eurasian um, sort of power blocks centered in China. Um, and this is going to lead to a fragmentation and a splintering and the weaponization of the global technology and financial networks that underpinned the global system. And so you would just naturally expect sort of a global internet um, endogenous money system that relies on integrated global semiconductors, uh, supply chains, global cloud, um, sort of computing infrastructure premised on, you know, the, the open internet. Like these things may not be um, a anchored assumption in the next five or 10 years. And increasingly, lots of things that were considered to be politically neutral, like, like computing in general and access to computing hardware and the ability to run any computing you want on any given uh, sort of, you know, power source, those things are going to be geopolitically and politically contested. Like you're already seeing out of the, the, the sort of corner of the policy space when it comes to the China export controls on emerging semiconductors and on uh, concerns over, you know, uh, extreme, say, uh, negative externalities from AI. There is likely going to be a push for a regime that extends what you see right now in the financial system of sort of know your customer to uh, cloud computing. So sort of KYC for cloud service providers. Mm. Um, we already have, you know, a very strict you know, export control regime over semiconductors. So we're restricting certain act certain um, actors in the global system, in this case, namely Chinese companies, from you know getting access to Western technology. They can't be provided services from Western companies. Individuals can't can't go work for those um, companies. They can't buy the most advanced chips and chip making equipment. Maybe soon uh, there'll be like a KYC regime imposed on. Uh, cloud service providers, so like AWS and Azure, you know, may not be able to provide you know, certain computing services to Chinese entities. So what what what, what, does this, what does this have to do with Bitcoin, right? Well, you can imagine like the 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 logic, the motivational structure behind setting up that type of surveillance and control regime over global computing, right? Is is a very similar regime that you would imagine if you started to perceive Bitcoin as a threat, right? Oh, we need to cut off access to the underlying hardware. Uh, or it's constrained in some way geopolitically. And guess what? You go to the back of the line, Bitcoin miners. Um, or, you know, the idea of transnational cross-border open computing uh, becomes something that is 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 geopolitically uh, fraught. <laughs> um, and so you can imagine uh, lots of, you know, soft, maybe even hard coercion being brought to bear on public entities that are accountable to regulators, right? They're listed public mining companies um, or they're, you know, very large pools of capital and they can be coerced into you know maybe not building a block on a certain transaction that the g7 doesn't want to be built into the canonical uh chain tip um so that is sort of something i would be worried about right is not just a risk from you know the bitcoin mining community becoming say just geographically concentrated but that geopolitical pressures um make make that concentration uh you know vulnerable um you could also imagine just, you know, right now everyone involved in Bitcoin mining is involved is like a Bitcoin diehard, right? They're people who do it for because they sort of are almost ideologically committed to the open source software project. Um, yeah. But fundamentally, people are you know motivated by financial interest. Uh, and the game theory of Bitcoin mining is premised on people, you know, not wanting to sacrifice, you know, the fee, right? You know, not wanting to censor the chain because you know they'll lose money. But if you have actors that are not financially motivated. Right. Then those that game theory could break down. And then it's a question of, well, to what extent can the network 
uh, you know, resist that through decentralization, right? So concentration of hash rate in jurisdictions where political pressure can be brought to bear, I think is a real risk. And I think miners know that. <laughs> and there's a reason why miners are you know, trying to become politically engaged. Um, and so that is, I think, the clearest kind of mechanism of, of sort of risk if you're if, if you're worried about um, a certain type of coercion. Um, and, you know, this could happen in a way that's like extreme, like there's a, you know, an OFAC order, or it could just be, hey, guys, we all know it's bad to let North Korea, you know, put this transaction on the chain. We all agree North Korea is bad. We all agree that North Korea doesn't, you know, they're, they're, they're just big bad people and we're just not going to process. Like, it could just be a social emerging agreement among the miners that, yeah, there's just certain transactions that we're just going to agree not to, you know, certain addresses that we're just going to agree to to not build on. Um, so I, I just want to, I just want to clarify this really quick because I'm curious. So the, it sounds like one of your exogenous examples is effectively that when, when this regulation does happen on AI, it's going to kind of bleed over or ride the coattails into other computing systems that are potentially negative for the state in certain ways, which Bitcoin is obviously as it grows larger, it can become something more um, of an adversary to the state where they'll already have that foothold to say like with this KYC or this limitation that we've already provided because uh, AI systems can potentially create bio biological weapons or whatever other uh, systemic risks they could they could actually engender that could bleed over into Bitcoin in certain ways in your view. It's more about the regulatory um, regime and the logic behind um, putting in place uh, conditionalities and constraints on private sector actors getting access to underlying you know, semiconductor hardware, oh, I as see. well as provision of cross-border sort of computing, right? Like the idea that we could just have anyone buy and sell computing services, hardware and software across borders is could become in question. And so like Bitcoin as a form of cross-border, you know, computing and relies on advanced semiconductor inputs in the supply chain for Bitcoin mining, like it will be affected. The question is to what extent those um, that policy framework would be explicitly directed at Bitcoin as a way to attack Bitcoin or the Bitcoin is just sort of incidentally affected by just a casualty like, on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Like overall sort of the, the splintering of the global technology supply chains the conditionalities placed on um, computing uh, uh, cross border and just in general, like it getting caught up in, you know, this this fractious uh, and, fra and sort of fracturing technology um, uh, system that we've built in the last, you know, 30 years. Um, so that's where I see just sort of the direction of travel going. Um, and Bitcoin sort of sticks out like yeah. sort of in that in that in that environment, like. It doesn't respect national borders. It it doesn't, you know, um, you know, endogenously respect OFAC sanctions. It doesn't it doesn't uh you know, um it doesn't say a miner can, you know, not buy a certain set of chips to run uh the hash function on, right? Um and so that is yeah, but the, we're moving into a world where getting access to those sorts of chips and being able to provide these types of services and just individuals, right? Like you can imagine extreme scenarios where you know, lots of blocks get put on, you know, uh, companies that are engaged in Bitcoin from certain jurisdictions and any, you know, transactions with them are are fraught. And, you know, it creates creates a lot of complexities that Bitcoin is not designed to respect. Right. The whole point is it's an open source software. No one controls it. No one can say this is OK. This is not OK. These are the rules. You buy by the rules. The protocol lets the let, lets the transaction go through um, in, in a world where 
lots of these sorts of transactions that used to be politically neutral now become politically and geopolitically fraught, that that tension I expect to grow. And yeah. that just becomes a source of risk over well, time. Some of what you mentioned kind of brings uh, to mind software to me. Um, I haven't read the book yet. I have it. It's just one of my list of books to read. So I'm not going to pretend as if I have a full grasp or understanding of it, but I've seen enough podcasts and listened to uh, him enough to understand it pretty well. You're saying that if that scenario plays out where nation states are like the G7 countries you mentioned are mining and then somehow trying to uh, censor transactions, it sounds almost counterintuitive to his point. He he seems to think that's a, a good thing that nation states get involved at, at that scale. Uh, and you're, are you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a negative in, in, uh, in total, or is that a positive thing? And before you go, uh, I am, I think 200 page, I think I'm at about the 200 page mark of software. So I'm, I'm just kind of cresting into where he really starts talking about Bitcoin, but I have the same exact question, Josh, and it's actually something I've jotted in the note several times. If you have nation states who have the lion's share of hash rate, they're going to have the ability to dictate what goes on chain in a, in a very profound way. You see it differently? Right. It's a great question, Josh, because I'm asking the same thing and I'm midway through the book. Maybe the answer comes here in the last 150 pages, but curious on your take. Yeah. I mean, this is all gets back to your definition of, of success, right? Like, yes. True. The definition of success is, um, you know, Western G7 powers have uh, control over the hash rate, then it'd be a good thing to incentivize and to write policy papers that recommend that those um, institutions take an affirmative position in uh, taking control of the mining infrastructure. <laughs> I'm not sure the average person who's running Bitcoin and the average Bitcoin miner would like to compete with a state yes. um, on that, and that the end result of that is likely to lead to a network that provides the same sorts of um, centers of resistance that they expected to provide to them now. Um, so Bitcoin could still run, right? That the, the blocks would still arrive. Um, it would just become essentially a co-opted system, right? It'd be, it'd be just a really expensive way of running, you know, a a permissioned um, blockchain, right? The question, yeah. the, the whole premise behind Bitcoin is it's a it's a permissionless system, right? Um, so if in the act of trying to defend it from attack, you turn it into a permission system, it can still work. Transactions can still run. In fact, it might still even have a lot of value. You can imagine a scenario where people go, "Oh, great! The G7's behind Bitcoin. I'm going to hold a lot of it now, right?" Um, the but the original cypherpunks would like, you know, roll over in their grave. Um, For sure. I mean, it's basically just, like nation states. I mean, it's Bitcoin selling out. I mean, obviously, it isn't doing that, but it's effectively mm -hmm. it's become a, a shell of itself at that point. He, here's the thing, though. At the least to the cypherpunks. The comment that needs to be thrown in here, though, and, and what still makes Bitcoin unique and viable, even in that scenario, is yeah. unlike a proof of stake system, that power over the network is not indefinitely held. Mining is a relentlessly and perpetually free market, the way I see it. So, yes, the notion that the United States of America is the world hegemon and has the, the massive majority of hash rate, the, the thought that that's going to go away anytime soon is probably unrealistic. But in that scenario... You fast forward 5, 10, 15 years, the global landscape changes, control or power over hash rate is always up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of Lowry's thesis is that there is this new settlement layer that's that's open to the free market indefinitely. Well, so there's two things I would say. One is um, in evaluating those different scenarios, you have to evaluate the, um, the motivation and capabilities of uh, the actors in the system. And, you know, that that can change the the, the the dynamics. And so in that scenario, 
the actors that you're trying to model, their intent, the capabilities are, you know, a collusion between, you know, large Bitcoin mining companies and a handful of, you know, Western powers. And you have to model out what is their changing set of um, incentives that structure their motivation and their capabilities, right? So like political, you know, um, agitation, ideological motivation, fractures between alliances and interests can change intent. Like, do we want to keep up this collusion? Do we want to break from the, the you know, the, the, uh, the coalition? Um, and capability. Do we actually have the ability to enforce the, the the coalitional censorship regime that that we've that we that we want to put in place? And there's things you could do to counter both of those, right? That you could undermine the intent and capability. On the capability side, it could just be they lose access to those chips. Um, they physically move <laughs> um, to a different jurisdiction. Uh, they get sabotaged. The software gets changed in terms of like Stratum V2 and you yeah. know, like there's lots of, you know, you could go down the branching tree and look at countermeasures and, and, and reactions. The fundamental thing though I would point to is that uh, what you mentioned is like there, there are scenarios where you can have um, a, a game theoretically stable coalition that um, just indefinitely controls the hash rate because they can always attack any other chain. They can always have, especially if they're not financially motivated, right? This is the whole premise of this, right? Yeah. If, mm -hmm. if their objective is to say, we want to have a permission system that we control, we're willing to basically take cost, right? We're willing to lose money. That, and you have the uh, um, intent and capability to execute that plan. You can do that. I mean, there's a great book um, by Michael Warren called Bitcoin, a Game Theoretic Analysis. And he works through under different assumptions. And again, it's all just like, you know, a theoretical model of where you could find coalitional incentives form that lead to uh, like an enduring censorship regime because the coalitional incentives among a handful of players um, that are not financially motivated endures. And yeah, the question is in that scenario, right? Do people just take their ball and go home and go Bitcoin's dead? Micah has an interesting thesis, which is actually if you play this out, one of the ways that you can imagine this, this scenario like um, being relatively stable is that uh, it, Bitcoin's price may not actually be hurt. Right. And so like it's, this is where you're the, the true strategy that would be dangerous to Bitcoin would be one where everyone's bags are protected, if not boosted. But mm. uh, but the censorship resistance properties of the network are compromised over time. Mm. And then eventually you get enough of this, you know, the economic majority of the of the participating nodes that are willing to, you know, make that trade off over, over time. Um and you know, leverage human nature's fundamental greed, right? As opposed to its orientation towards autonomy and resistance to coercion, right? Like that's yeah. that's how you could imagine. Again, this is all just gaming out like different scenarios. I have a couple comments as mm -hmm. we sort of, unfortunately, probably close this section out and get to the get to the NHI stuff. The first thought I have is immediately an example that pops in my head about a non-economically motivated sovereign balance sheet is what's going on in golf right now mm -hmm. between the PIF and the PGA Tour. They mm -hmm. spun up this live tour in competition to the PGA Tour, and it's really the first time we've seen full frontal non-economic motivation out of a sovereign balance sheet enter the private sector of sports, offering numbers that there's no way they're going to recoup to PGA Tour professionals, spinning mm -hmm. up tournaments with absolutely no hope of returns just to whatever their motivation is, whether it's sports washing or something else. And what it has done 
is completely fuck up the free market in golf. I'm not saying it's bad for the spectator, but the PGA Tour immediately had to pivot, cuck down, include them in the decision-making process, and now we've got this big body. And it's a, it, what it represents, it's a microcosm of you cannot get out of the straitjacket when someone with that amount of buying power enters an arena even if you hope and wish it's a free market, mm-hmm. these are huge players that massively change the dynamic. And Bitcoin's very small. Yes, hash rate looks expensive when you look at it on your block clock. But when you think about a sovereign balance sheet entering the ring, it's kind of a gorilla against a mosquito, at mm-hmm. least at this date and time. Yeah. So, the last thing I'll say is, because I, I think it's, there's like three forms of consensus that underpin sort of Bitcoin right now or Bitcoin as a as a project. Um, and so you can imagine attacks against all three forms that you could explore in much more, much more detail. But like one is just like the most common, which is like attack on the canonical state of the chain, which is the traditional 51% attack, right? The other is trying to attack the rules, right? Trying to undermine the social consensus that there is a relatively rigid, maybe even fixed, although this, that's a separate debate, um, set of, set of protocol rules that define what Bitcoin is as a project, that it, enable censorship resistance, that no change to Bitcoin's rules are acceptable if they deviate from these sort of canonical principles, right? The third set of consent, the the third type of consensus is that BTC as an asset has value. That people have sort of this sort of um, subjective, uh, you know, belief that this digital asset has value. And, you know, that's like what you can attack in the market. You could have, you know, short selling, you can do all sorts of things to manipulate the price. You can undermine confidence in it, that sort of thing. Um, and they all they all intersect to a certain extent, right? But there's like three different dimensions of sort of meta consensus around the state of the chain, around the rules of the protocol, and around the value of BTC as an asset. Uh, and yeah, like that would be how you would, you know, set up the tree of risks and you'd see how they would all interact. Um, I don't have like, like, I don't know, like I, I analyze risk for a, re- for, for a living, right? I don't have like a probability assigned to each of those and all the different permutations. I just think people are being a little bit um, Pollyannish if they think it's like inevitable that, you know, the destiny of Bitcoin, like yes. nothing is inevitable in reality, right? Mm-hmm. Contingency in history is a thing. And you then have to have like, if you believe a certain outcome is, um, you know, more more favorable, you have to sort of advocate for it and convince other human beings that that, that outcome is desirable, right? I mean, that's what living in society is. Yeah. One of the I things that, that. Be- before we move off this topic, wh- the way you were describing nation states kind of wrestling over this, it's it's kind of weird to, to kind of mix that idea with um, Ray Dalio's book, Changing World Order, about how all these countries, each one that kind of takes over this uh, hegemon of the world, their currency is the currency that's for the world at that point, which has gone on for the last 500 years, probably into antiquity longer than that. But the uh, what I'm thinking here is the way if Bitcoin is successful and that ends up being the thing, like when there's a new hegemon, they basically take over the primary mining of Bitcoin and can kind of curtail or control potentially in, in this kind of dystopian future we're talking about. Uh, some of the transactions are the tip of the of the uh, of the block space, as you as you mentioned. Is that something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, I mean, this is where I mean, my larger analysis of Bitcoin is 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 as a subset of a geopolitical analysis, because as you pointed out, like monetary systems are somewhat downstream of geopolitical yeah. um, regimes, and so if you're you know postulating a change, either a rapid or a slow evolution in the prevailing monetary system, you'd have to look to associated changes in the geopolitical regime, right? And that's that's what the lesson of history is, is that like the sort of a dominant power 
their their credits are treated as money good in a global trading system and that helps sort of reinforce the power over time but it also has this sort of pathology that it leads to a a, a bad balance of payments for that hegemon right they have to run increasing deficits to supply those um or they have to like you know increase increasingly expand their imperial operations to become really expensive become a resource drain social pathologies develop and eventually the empires collapse like that's kind of the history of that ray dahlia tells um I don't know if we're in, like, everyone analogizes that to this current moment. There's lots of things that are weird about our current moment, but I think they have, you know, history rhymes, right, but never repeats. And we do see the, 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 that traditional pattern playing out. Um, I don't know, though, whether, well, l lots of scenarios. But, like, I guess the fundamental premise that I would question is that a new hegemon would rise um, as opposed to just a general fracturing and disorder prevailing right where there isn't like a new like for example i do not expect the chinese yuan to replace the dollar as right. a global reserve currency i do not expect their debts to replace the treasury security as a global reserve asset um uh in the scenario where maybe the u.s say backs down from defending taiwan or loses a war over taiwan or we go through a major political domestic rupture that you know re retrenches our power projection and our allies around the, around the world have to recalibrate changing security arrangements um you know, that that is that is a situation in which in general, right, you would just see a rebalancing, right? A more multipolar, multi currency system. Yeah. Um, there is a use of the dollar that's sort of separate from the hegemonic power of the of the United States. It's just it's the denomination of choice in the Euro dollar system. Um, so you need collateral and the best form of collateral right now is a treasury security in that in that market. So the question is, can you find a better form of collateral um, if the treasury security ceases to become a good a good form of collateral in the offshore dollar system? Um, right now, there isn't a really good alternative. I mean, gold is sort of the next best, you know, but that's it has its it has its major limitations <laughs> in, a, in a credit based trading system that's like at a scale much much larger than gold, um, and that also facilitates you know speed of transaction and settlement. Um, in a 21st century economy. So this is where we are, right? And I guess this is a this is dot 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 like you know, there's a lot of inertia, network network um power behind the current system and it won't just like fall apart unless there's like a total catastrophe, right? Um but you would you might see, you know, chinks in the armor uh especially as, you know, the the, the geopolitical competition heats up, structural inflation from um French shoring and uh you know, re re remaking supply chains, regraining the economy, increasing defense outlays, increasing um, social spending for our retirees. These things are all going to put a lot of strain on Western G7 budgets at the same time that their debts are considered the money, good collateral in the offshore dollar system. China especially is trying to, you know, undermine that system as part of a, you know, full, a, a multi-domain um, effort to challenge the existing rules-based uh, order. Um, and this is, yeah, this is where we're going to see Bitcoin evolve. It's going to be in this in increasingly yeah. contentious geopolitical monetary environment. And Bitcoin, I expect, just could be like, um, I think as, as as Luca was like, last functioning smoke alarm, but also like the most uh, like finely tuned liquidity and like volatility indicator, right? Like I expect it'll just, you know, it'll be like this 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 uh, tail that just wags really fast depending on um, what's happening in the global system. Mm, very well said. By the way, if you're a listener and you haven't read Matt's piece, The Future Geopolitical Order in Bitcoin. We will have it linked in the notes. I think it's a must read. I think it really hits this theme of multipolarity, fragmentation, and Bitcoin playing a role. And I think that although we've been, maybe you could say, partially bearish here in the beginning of the episode, I think that future is potentially extremely bullish for this asset. I'll also close this section before I hand the baton off to Josh to, to get into the real stuff here. <laughs> I like what you said, Pines, about 
the monetary stuff being downstream of the the geopolitics. And that may not sound fun or sexy or libertarian to the average internet warrior, but it's the reality right now. And it's very likely going to be the reality, at least partial reality in your lifetime. I also just think these sorts of segments on this show are a huge priority for us. We're going to keep doing them. We'll probably do them in higher cadence because there, as you said, Matt, there's no, there's nothing inevitable about this. Whereas as smitten and interested by it as we've ever been, but there is so much unknown. It's so early. Technology is moving so quickly in the 2020s and beyond that to extrapolate 30 years out in the future with complete confidence is totally clownish. Your individual understanding, everyone here, everyone listening, is so limited. I think we said this the first time you were on here. You study these global dynamics for a living. To think that whoever you are, you have a, a perfect or very clear read on what's happening in the world is extremely naive. We need a healthy skepticism mm. of ourselves. And then lastly, we're seeing examples even the last week of the power yielded by regulators and governments. I am excited that Bitcoin's labeled as a, as a commodity. I am excited that it doesn't pass the Howey test, but these are not inerrant documents that are never going to change. If regulators and policymakers want to fuck with this technology, I'm not saying it's going to bury it, but it's going to wound its valuation in the short term, and you need to be ready for that. I mean, look at the blows they've dealt to the crypto industry, what the yeah. SEC has done here. These are really significant measures that, in, that could, in many regards, totally maim the crypto industry, not just in the United States, but globally. And if you're a Bitcoin maximalist, that may sound like a great thing, and I think in some ways it is, but it's not as if they can't pivot the blasters to Bitcoin and and deal some serious laser shots. So For sure. And I think what you're saying, Dan, is so important for people to understand. The more you study, the more you research anything, the more you realize how much you don't know. It's as if you step out into this grand plane and it just becomes larger and larger the more you know and you realize there's no way you ever reach that horizon. So having humility when you make these kinds of you know uh, pre predictions for the future is important because nobody really knows. We're all making our best estimation as to where this goes. Um, and that I think parlays really well into our next topic, which is so just to give everyone a lay of the land for my background, I'm a huge sci-fi nerd. I love reading all kinds of sci-fi. Matt, your book, uh, Expectation Values, on my list. It's just my <laughs> list never ends, and it always incurs a new. So Harry Sudok's got me on the three-body problem. I'm like halfway through it. That book is stellar, by the way. If anyone's listening and likes sci-fi, read that book. It's amazing. So I'm predisposed to be interested in aliens and have fallen down many rabbit holes of alien lore, as many do. <laughs> <laughs> so many times that like I, I, it's for years, probably a decade I've been reading about this crazy stuff, but... No time has it been more interesting than now, in my view. With David Grush, who's a 14-year veteran of military and intelligence services, having his background vetted by some serious journalists, having, if you haven't seen the interview with him, we're going to talk about it now. Uh, we're going to ruin a whole bunch of it for you, but you should go listen to it anyway, because this guy, I don't know if this is some kind of a crazy psyop to mess with all of our heads and distract from something else. It could certainly be that, but it's working on a couple firefighters. It, it sure is. is. I'll tell yeah. you that, Josh. But this is interesting. And um, if he is who he says he is, which it seems that he is, he's reading from the playbook of some of the most off the wall ideas that have existed in, in the UFO lore for decades and is claiming he has seen evidence, at least documentation. And he's seen and he's talked to people who firsthand have seen this evidence. Uh, so, Matt, if you don't mind, uh, start a bit about 
his background and maybe how he said a craft allegedly was found in Italy in 1933 was hidden by Mussolini. <laughs> the Vatican. <laughs> and this the is, the, this is just the craziest it. part. The Vatican knew about it and the Vatican tipped off the U.S. And then we scooped up this craft and now we have it. Just start there and let's just exp- – we don't have any real <laughs> – I've got so much written about this. There's no way we're oh, going to get through too. it all. But it's just like let's just talk about it. Let's just talk yeah. about what's the – where is the ground here? I guess is really, I'm, I feel like I'm falling through a mist and I have no idea what's what because it's so completely insane. Wait, before you go too, Matt, because I think I want to speak to one segment of the listener right now here real quick, guys. And that's the person that's, why in the fuck are you guys talking about this? This is ridiculous. I want to talk to that person real quick. I am naturally skeptical, okay? And I am not completely bought into this narrative or idea right now. So I think... First off, I'm just going to communicate to the listenership. You should be skeptical. Bold claims like this, these are very, very bold claims. They they need backup. They mm. need substantiation. We shouldn't buy this hook, line, and sinker. I just want to interject I'm some of my experience. By the way, fully erect. Josh knows that I'm a natural skeptic. It took me more time to, to buy into Bitcoin. I'm just kind of an eye roller. It takes a long time. I'm a slow mover. I will say, having looked into this for a little while... Because of Josh, having been kind of enamored by the Lazar stories, the, the the Commander David Fravor, the Ryan Graves stuff, this feels different right now. This feels my attention is perked. Josh, you made a statement to me after the the Grush announcement and whistleblow and video that you feel like you've gone from thinking this is about a two percent probability of being reality to a 20% probability. And I think that's about accurate for where my headspace is right now. I've gone from mostly dismissing it to suddenly being like, how do we explain this? Because having a high-ranking intelligence officer with the consequences of misinformation that exist and the people he's poking and the prodding he's doing with Congress, more is on the line. And I am. this has entered the realm of seriousness for me. Say that to the segment of the listener that's like, more in my shoes completely and i totally understand that because there is no evidence but it's just coming from a place of what seems like harder ground than it's ever come from before Mm. this isn't a bob lazar who has got you know they can't even vet his background they don't know if he's actually who he says he is matt if you want to take it and run wherever you want with that (laughs) i know that this has been an area of interest for you and it's probably going you could probably go on for four hours about this but let's hear your your high level thoughts on this first of all Yes, yeah, so I guess I should just explain like why why I pay attention to this um, at all. I think it's I, one. I guess maybe I'm psychologically disposed to thinking about weird things. Like Same. Yeah, I was always I was always like trying to find the deepest questions. Um, you know, investigate the physics and philosophy as an undergrad. That's what I did as an undergrad. I was going to do a PhD in physics. I was always trying to understand like the answers to the big why questions, right? And of course, you know, extraterrestrial life is always like on the top of that list, right? Um, uh, and I'm also just like one. I, my intellectual strategy has been to try to look at things that are um, someone in the corners, someone in the tails of the of, of, of the distribution. And in my professional career, a lot of what I did, you know, in my previous consulting life was helping the government think through tail risk scenarios. Right. What are those low probability, high consequence events? How do we make sure that we're prepared for them? How do we make sure that we're not ignoring, you know, um, things we're not you know, subject to a strategic surprise? Um, so like my intellectual background and my professional um, trajectory kind of made me just sort of think about things in that sort of corner of the of the room, right? The sort of the the things that maybe you would um, 
you know, if you're just going about your daily life, you could just ignore. But like in my career, like I had to think about things like nuclear war and catastrophic cyber attacks and pandemics and these things that are, you know, not pleasant to think about. Um, but someone has to think through those like low probability, high consequence events. Mm. And so that's kind of because my intellectual strategy, my, my professional background, because maybe maybe prime me to think about these questions. Um, and the other sort of then the point that I would make about you're right in terms of thinking about this question, not in terms of like binary, do I believe it or do I not believe it, but as a function of credences from 0% to like 100%, right? Like you have to be a Bayesian about lots about about anything, right? Your beliefs are a function of evidence that's so always imperfect. It's always constrained by your background and your your um, your existing beliefs. Um, and so you have to evaluate incoming evidence against, you know, what you hope is like a rational backdrop of you know, existing, existing beliefs. Um, and you, then you weigh evidence and you update and then you look for more evidence and you update again. It could go up or down. Uh, so that's how I try to approach this question in general is like as purely Bayesian as possible, trying to put the emotion and the bias and the pre and the preconception um, uh, uh, sort of aside. Um, and then so when you start to evaluate this larger topic, I think I sort of analogize it to like, you know, imagine you're in a, you're in a, you're in the middle of a forest clearing. Um, and so you've got a pretty good picture on, you know, the the well-lit uh, clearing you're in, right? You can see mm -hmm. the grass. You got, you know, clear clear, clear picture of, of what's going on around you. You can see a bit into the forest uh, that's immediately adjacent to the clearing. And then you just, you just see dark forest, you know, spreading out in all directions. And I think people in the subject naturally want to jump to, well, what's, what's like the furthest out? Right. What is the what are the aliens real? Yeah. Are they time travel? Are they and so everyone wants to jump outside into the dark forest and try to reason with very, very little purchase on very circumstantial evidence about a whole range of things that you just you just don't have a solid handle on. And I say, well, just come back to the clearing, start with what we do have a solid handle on, things that are unambiguous facts about this topic that you can start with. And you establish that as a solid foundation, and then you can work your way out gradually. And with circumspection and nuance over time. And so that's where I like the sensationality of this topic forces people to want to jump into the forest, but you get lost yep. in the forest, you know where you are. And then you find my might find it hard to come back uh, to the center of the clearing. I love that so, analogy. So yeah, yeah, start us start us in the yeah. clearing in the in the bright light and let's let's get to the edges and find out where these tigers are at. Hold our yeah. hand tight too. I'm scared. <laughs> Exactly. So in the center of the clearing, the best place to start, I think, is sort of a brief review of the history of the subject um, in the public domain. Right. I mean, you could go all the way back to like the 1940s and 50s. And there's tons of books about the sort of legacy um, public programs the U.S. government had led. Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book. There's a whole bunch of documentaries and reports. And this is all in the public domain that U.S. government throughout the, the 20th century, officially you know, post-World War II, had had to respond to public reports of these things and had to put together various panels, various government uh, government investigations, written various reports. All the main subs uh, substance of that was essentially uh, debunking it, casting cold water on it, et cetera. Um, but it's not like this came out of nowhere, right? Everyone's familiar with this in the pop culture domain, but it's like a serious subject of like bureaucratic effort. This is this is this has been a you know a longstanding thing the government has had to deal with and do since you know like the late forties. Um, so that's like, you know, I'm not going to go the whole history. I think where this, this recent chapter begins is really 2017 mm -hmm. where the New York times came out with that article and they had, you know, some gentlemen come forward that had been in senior positions inside the Pentagon and, and also in the Senate, um, intelligence committee, uh, specifically a gentleman named Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, um, who were kind of like the, the, they, you know, if there's anyone to point to is like, it was these, those two individuals who came forward 
worked with outside journalists to get um, these videos uh, released and get these uh, reports published in the New York Times. That sort of, I would say, is the beginning of like the recent history of this subject. And that, I think, is what kickstarted everything you're seeing today, right? And so that's like where you have like the ov- the overt evidentiary record of like what happened when. Um, and, and wait, as a quick timeout <laughs> too, because I did go through a brief uh, extraterrestrial UAP phase pre-2017, and I <laughs> kind of closed the book on it. So another message I want to deliver is if you close the book pre-2017 and haven't reopened it, it is time to do so. Sorry, keep going. I think that'd be a, a fair judgment. Um, so 2017 is really kind of where this all got started. Um, and Lou Elizondo, who uh, was a career uh, military intelligence official who was tasked um, uh, to sort of, uh, on his sort of, it's debatable whether it was an actual program or whether it was a collateral duty, but he was responsible for something that went by the by the moniker the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program called ATIP for almost 10 years, I think. And in that in that role, he was responsible for collecting reports, uh, principally from the Navy and naval, um, uh, like naval pilots and other individuals that had encounters with you know anomalous objects, anomalous phenomena that went under the banner unidentified um, uh, anomalous phenomena, or actually it was aerial phenomena recently changed to anomalous phenomena. Um, and so that was kind of where it got started. He, you know, and he wasn't like a UFO guy apparently from the beginning, but like he. He was tasked with his job, and he's like, there's something weird here going on. He tried to give briefings up the chain to his leadership, um, and apparently some folks around Secretary Mattis at the time sort of stalled him from briefing the SecDef. And so he resigned in protest, um, wrote a resignation letter saying, you know, Secretary, I've been trying to get this information to your attention. Um, Unfortunately, it was unsuccessful, so I've had to resign in in protest, essentially. And so then he, in in concert with uh, Christopher Mellon, who was a former assistant secretary of defense for intelligence and then was the senior staff director uh, for the majority count for the majority staff on the Senate Select Committee Intelligence. They kind of got together <laughs> around that time and helped kind of work this angle through the New York Times to get these these uh, the, these um, these videos out. And that kind of started everything back then. Uh, I won't go through like all the then like the history yeah. and the immediate those three years. Really, 2020 was when the next sort of uh, inflection point happened when I think the deputy secretary of defense at the time um, responded to congressional pressure because the Congress, especially the Senate, Select Committee Intelligence, was hearing from folks like Mellon and other folks saying, there's something here. You need to, like, put the Pentagon's feet to the fire. You know, they're not telling you the truth about what's going on on the subject. And a lot of, like, pilots were saying, like, we have, you know, no, there's, like, a stigma to report this stuff. Like, we're almost crashing into these objects. And we, we, we you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a safety flight issue. So those pilots had come to Congress, had given testimony, and sort of this this pressure was building. So the Secretary of Defense signed this memo that created a, a unidentified aerial phenomenon task force, the UAPTF, I think in like July of 2020, and that actually pulled together some things that had already been like happening, on, but maybe not as formally on like the UAP subject inside many different parts of the defense and intelligence communities. Um, and so that UAP task force got stood up officially by this um, you know DepSec Def memo. Um, but Congress wasn't exactly all that satisfied, put more pressure on, um, and they passed, I think, the first uh, FY 2022 National Defense Authorization Act that mandated the creation of um, what became what now is called the um, uh, All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. It went through a few different permutations of names as sort of the jockeying between the Pentagon and the, and the DNA and the, the, 
the director of national intelligence and the Senate were like, okay. Is there a we'll bureaucracy all... in the government that <clears throat> that just produces new names for these bureaucrats? Yes. The oh, other yeah. bureaucracies? For, for, I mean, there's a... For a hot second there, there was one called like the AOMSIG, which was like the <laughs> Anomaly Oversight Synchronization and Management Integration Group. It was like it was like they were intentionally trying to make it as like impossible yeah. to pronounce. Um, I, I, wait, one thing I wanted to j chime in here with, because I, I think we're talking about the same thing, but there's so many names thrown out here, it's hard yeah. for me to track. This National Defense Authorization Act, spearheaded by Senator mm -hmm. Gillibrand and Marco Rubio, and then signed mm -hmm. into law by President Biden, December mm -hmm. 2022. This thing's a big deal. It signals yeah. a, a brand new level of openness from Congress, from the president to this topic. The provision states that any person with relevant UAP information can inform Congress without retaliation, regardless of any previous non-disclosure agreements. Big deal signals that signals that this topic is right. in a new sphere, and I think we'll get to this later on in the conversation. But probably had to be a big impetus for David for Grush sure. feeling comfortable coming forward. But this is not well, a joke. If you're sitting there yeah. going, "This this idea is a joke," at the highest levels of government, it's not a joke. Sure, it could be a psyop, but it's not. It's not a clown show anymore. Right. The inspector general called Grush's information urgent and credible. Those aren't words that they use, you know, nonchalantly. Those are words that are taking this serious. Before you keep going, were you surprised at this National Defense Authorization Act? Did it take you back or were you expecting this sort of uh, open discourse? So the first one was FY22. Uh, and that sort of was when Congress had a shot across the bow, but it wasn't as um, strong. And so they gave duty and the IC time to kind of digest how serious Congress was. And that's when they came back and whacked them with the FY23 National Defense Authorization gotcha. Act provision. Um, of uh, some of what you just read from, which are, yes, I encourage anyone who just wants to get like firsthand, you know, um, uh, gut feel for how serious uh, this issue is, is just read the provisions that were passed by both houses of Congress on a bipartisan basis, um, signed into law. Just read the language that's in the law that is instructing, you know, most people don't read the language, just read the language. It is very, it would be very surprising, I think, just how explicit the, the statutory languages and it's long it's like 30 pages of of of, of provisions reporting provisions going back to night to january 1st 1945 and doing a historical review of any u.s government legacy uap related programs including efforts to manipulate deceive or undermine public opinion on the subject literally that's like wow. they owe that report by i think middle of next year wait when uh, wait, is that an anecdote when was roswell again 47 yeah. 47, 48, somewhere. Sorry. Mm -hmm. I was just curious what the timeline was. Yeah. Keep going. Um, so yeah, just read the, I mean, it, you know, just read the language that's that's now the law of the land. Um, that tells you just how serious this is. This the, and that's the motivational structure behind all that's happened. The connection to Grush to kind of pull it full circle was uh he came and the dates I'm just doing from memory, um, he was assigned to the UAP task force in twenty nineteen, um, just before it became formally um like stood up in in july 2020 but mm -hmm. like this was happening behind the scenes that just didn't have like a signed memo from the depsec def but he was the national defense i think it was at that time he was the um either the nga national geospatial intelligence agency um uh, uh senior technical integration officer and then you know shortly thereafter he moved to the national reconnaissance office um i may have that flipped but he was in those two kind of very senior verse um uh sort of uh, important intelligence uh uh, uh, organs of the state. Um, he was assigned to be a co-lead on the UAP task force. And the reason why he was assigned to that job is because 
in his in his position as like the senior um, sort of technical integration officer as a senior intelligence advisor to the director of the National Reconnaissance Office, is his job was to put together the NRO's contributions to the to the presidential um, the presidential daily brief. The NRO manages what we call um, the national overhead system. So like all of our space satellites, the most classified stuff we got, you know, flying around up there, collects an enormous amount of intelligence. His job was to compile that intelligence on a daily basis for the director of NRO for compilation into the presidential's daily brief. And so, and, and, and also help it together the presidential's daily brief, which is the most sensitive, most classified document in the U.S. government. Like, full stop. So, I mean, um, just to translate, an extremely high-ranking, highly cleared intelligence officer. Not just extremely high, right? We're not misreading that. I mean, at the, at the highest levels of access... Yes. So his rank was he was GS-15, which is the the highest rank in the civilian service. Above that, you have to be a political or um, it's like the senior executive service. So he was like, he wasn't like a, he was only, he's, he's 36 years old. So he's not like uh, an old gray beard, but he was, you know, GS-15s for a 36 year old is, is, um, he's very young to get that, to get that promotion um, to that level. But it's more a matter of his accesses. So according to the journalist Ross Colthart, um, he had in the in in the function of in the function that he was in, he had to have what are called tickets, right? So, and I I had a number of these tickets. Is that you know you have top secret special um, sensitive compartmented information access granted via need to know to compartment information, and there is a wide range of programs the U.S. government that are protected under different um, sort of degrees of secrecy, right? They're all top secret, but there's a whole sort of universe of compartments. In the DOD, it's called Special Access Programs. In the intelligence community, it's called Compartmented Access Programs, SAPs and CAPs. And that is a whole infrastructure for how we protect very sensitive information. Um, they have special control procedures, special access. You only get access to them via, via need to know. You are cleared as an individual to hold top secret information, but you have to be read into a specific compartment um, of a SAP or a CAP. And so he was read into, apparently, over 2,000 SAPs which is like an insane number. Like that is insane. And so this was, this explains why he was put into a role he was at the UAP task force because the, the mandate from Congress to the task force and that became Arrow was you need to find out all the UAP related information inside the government to write this report to us. So you need to go and like, it is a massive sprawling bureaucracy, right? You need to find, so you're like, all right, if this stuff exists, it's gotta be tucked away in some crazy saps. Who do we need to put on this team that has the clearances and has the accesses and now has the need to know to go out and, and, and interview people that might be involved in these things so we can meet our legislative mandate to Congress? That was so his job was to do that. He was and that's what he says he did is that he spent about two, three years systematically going out and interviewing all of his colleagues and other people that he you know came into contact with throughout the government um, that told him what he reported to Ross Coulthard. So that is like where we get to, which is he is reporting what he heard. So it's all, it's firsthand hearsay, right? right? So he's just relaying what these individuals came to him in the course of his official duties, interviewing them to, you know, collect information on these programs to meet congressional um, legislative intent, said, yes, I have been working on crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs of, uh, exotic technology that's not so this you know, is where we meet the trees like we are <laughs> yes we've, we're kind of traversing right yes. into the darkness at this point and this is where i mean for anyone listening who hasn't been privy to this information yet strap in because this is just 
completely bonkers stuff that, yeah, that I just want to hear Matt's opinion on. I mean, I, I watched it with my wife and she knows my disposition. She knows I don't get raptured by, I mean, I, I'm not giving myself too much credit here, but I, I'm not the kind of guy you're going to hear on a street corner telling people there's aliens. We watched this together. The the I had to read the debrief article beforehand, and then we watched this, and we honestly, at one point, she had a glass of wine, I was one beer in, and we literally just were looking at each other, just like, what in the world? It's it's very hard, and, and actually, the analyst on New, News Nation, I forget his name afterward, when Ross Coldheart was kind of unpacking this, he would he I, I appreciated his demeanor. He was sitting there saying, "This is just a lot to take in, knowing who this guy is and mm-hmm. what he is saying is something that my brain and my wife's brain I mm-hmm. weren't computing and and almost still haven't computed. Even in prepping for this talk, we're back into it, and I'm like, the shit he is divulging and suggesting." from many different sources through extensive research and, and, and major high level access is well, the the really crazy thing is that no matter how bonkers, what he did talk about is he inferred that there's a lot more to come. Like there are more disclosures that are going to come like, and it sounded almost imminent. And he also named who else has this information. It's not as though this is, I mean, he can't share all this and maybe you can get into more of these dynamics of Mm -hmm. of intelligence but it's not as though it's it's hidden and lost and and he says these individuals have the full extent of what I uncovered during my research and he names those people. It's yeah. out there and now Congress is is once again doubling down that they're going to be looking into it. They're giving credence to who he is in this perspective. I guess the next step is maybe for you to explain what he's suggesting is reality. Yes. Uh, yes. So he he filed a whistleblower complaint in I think May, uh, May May or July or May, June or July of 2021. The Inspector General of the Intelligence uh, Community took that, took that complaint of that um, certain elements in the U.S. government were withholding uh, illegally information on legacy UAP programs from the Congress. The Inspector General investigated that claim um, and then in May, I believe it was May or April, reported it um, to uh, the DNI and to Congress, of, this was of, of 2022, that mm-hmm. they had deemed it urgent and credible and that they referred. And so in the process of doing that investigation, they went out and investigated not only the individuals that Grush says were the source of this information, and they went out and then investigated other individuals inside the intelligence community to corroborate the claims. That is the, that's, the, that's the reporting, right? I don't know this firsthand, but that's mm-hmm. the reporting. The Inspector General, the intelligence community went and talked to the people that Grush talked to and other individuals to substantiate at least some substance of these claims and then said to those individuals and to Grush, they notified the, the council of the, like the, like the legal council of the Senate, Click, Sec, Senate Select Committee of Intelligence, SSCI and, and HIPSI, the House Permanent Select Committee of Intelligence, which are insulated from the politicians to keep the investigation of a whistleblower and potential reprisal actions um, insulated from political interference, which is generally what you what, what what's practiced. When you have a whistleblower report, you generally don't get the members of Congress involved and in talking with the witnesses out of concern of political interference. So it's the council and the staff, professional staff that have these accesses that um, uh, that receive this information under um, sworn testimony. So so he and other individuals were deposed not only you know by the inspector general but by the congressional um, uh, council of these two committees, and apparently they've given. You know, hours of testimony 
hundreds of pages. And in that, in that testimony are very specific things. Like this is the, these are the code word names of the programs that are being used to illegally cover these UAP activities that are not being reported to you. These are the contractors that are involved. This is the illegal uh, violations of the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR, that are, you know, leading to, you know, the misdirection of taxpayer funds. <laughs> these are, you know, like material misstatements made by like individuals involved in managing these programs, not reporting it per, you know, like legal requirements on special access programs. Um, and this is where they're, they're located. This is the facility where these where these crafts are being stored, like literally like the roadmap. He, he was, literally names, you, you know that, that he names like the location and facility where this shit's at? Either he or other individuals that were referred to wow. Congress have given apparently a roadmap to Congress. Um, and so that is where it stands is it's all hearsay. It's like you have to go and mm -hmm. go knock on those doors and go show me the show me this facility be whatever. Right. And like open it up. Right. Like this is I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but like, yeah, th there's enough information apparently provided to Congress. The, 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 the pickle they're in now is, OK, we've got we've got this list of things and people and places. What do we do? Because Congress isn't you know, magical, right? Like they can't just like charter a, you know, a Huey and go like airdrop over Lockheed Martin's desert facility and say, show me the, show me the bodies or whatever. Right. Like they can't, <laughs> yeah. can't do that. Right. So now they're just like, uh Oh, like, what do we do with this? And I think they weren't prepared for this all happening as quickly as it's happened. Um, they were aware of this testimony, but I think it had sort of surprised them how this story came out as quickly yeah. as it did. Um, and they don't have, I think they have a lot of time to prepare for like what the public response is. There's an article this morning just in, in Wired about, you know, this guy went and got these, all the senators and congressmen on the record on response to the claims. And Senator Gillibrand basically said, um, you know, I, I'm very concerned if there are rogue SAPs, special access programs being used, uh, illegally. And I want to, I want to get to the bottom of this. I want to investigate this. And she's going to introduce, you know, in the next National Defense Authorization Act, another set of legal provisions that specifically mandates, you know, any congressional funds that are being used to support SAPs have to be reported. Yeah. So she, she, there is this interplay between the whistleblower hints and leaks from the inside that turn into legislation that further try to like tighten the screws on what is, you know, being being alleged is like a, uh, an illegal set of activities on on these programs. Um, David Grush was the one, you know, he he was what basically the first person to use this whistleblower provision that you just read from from the December twenty two. Um, a National Defense Authorization Act, the sort of whistleblower protection, which said anyone that had been involved in legacy UAP programs that had signed non-disclosure agreements related to those programs was relieved of their obligations under those NDAs and could not be retaliated against if they came forward in the proper manner and disclosed uh, those activities to Arrow and, and Congress. Um, and there's some consternation that Arrow, the office inside the Pentagon that's now under the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, um, that was tasked by Congress to investigate this, and was told basically to now report directly to the DepSec Def and the DNI that they're not taking this seriously. They're kind of stonewalling or stalling on investigating these claims. Um, they may or not actually have the quote unquote Title 50 intelligence authorities to um, do the systematic investigation that Grush is sort of pointing in their direction. They may also not want to. Um, and that's where we're in this sort of very tense, politically fraught moment where all these bureaucratic power centers are jockeying for position. And these yeah. are just like, so that's like the inside baseball. But the substance of his claims, you want to get into the meat of it, right? Oh, yeah, we do. Are, are absolutely bonkers, right? Like we bonkers. are. Bonkers. Like, like, like we're not, we're if not. If we had in... to pick, 
If you had to pick what is the most insane part of this, I, I don't want to go to that right off the bat, but there's so much of this that even any one individual piece of this would be crazy to hear. But he compiled what you could best be described as like an orgy of UFO information placed into a one hour segment, one after another of all these disparate different, you know, crazy rabbit holes you could go down over the last 10 or 20 years, all just kind of compiled into one. And although we don't have the stone cold evidence and nor was that his point. His point is to direct Congress and those with the power to where to go find this evidence. The specificity of what he shares is what really got my attention. We're not talking about back to the commander, David, David Fravor, Ryan Graves encounters where it's very nebulous, unknown, impressive and freaky, but not just, Hey, we saw this Tic Tac thing on our radar and I saw it visually, but we have no clue what it is. He's getting into intact craft, bodies of of extraterrestrial or non-human species, uh, talking specifically about dates and times. Like Josh, you kicked it mm-hmm. off talking about, he's talking about in 1933 under Mussolini, something crashed in Italy and the Vatican knew about it. He's talking about, he's giving validity to the, the Roswell and that that was a complete cover-up, totally misrepresented. He's saying something crashed there. I mean- He's saying the Russians and the Chinese have also acquired some of these craft. I mean- I don't remember where I wrote these numbers down, but somebody was speculating between 12 and 15 of these craft are in possession in the U.S. Yeah, it was the, it was one of the and guys uh, that, that came in and commented afterward was saying he yeah, was, was 12. He, the, the, I Wait, think, sorry, who was that? I didn't. It was, uh, it was a like a he's a Substack kind of uh, free speech okay. journalist named Michael okay. Shelley, um, who apparently has been developing sources on the subject for a number of years. I think but, I, yeah. honestly, like if I was going to say what is the most obtuse claim out of all of this is that he infers that there are more than one entity. He, he refers to non-human intelligence is like, as if there are more than one we've had quote unquote contact with that is probably, I mean, if, if it was just one, like that's hard to swallow multiples mm-hmm. is even crazier. And then inferring that one of these multiple non-human intelligences is malicious or has been malicious, which mm-hmm. is scary as hell. Yeah. Um, and to wait I'm to sorry, continue I'm vomiting. vomiting all this yeah, information. Well, 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 at I you, mean, but. Josh and I are just are, are, are processing this verbally and then handing it back to you. But other things I wrote down, they're interested in our nukes. So a lot of that stuff he that story, corroborates. That story's Did, been in lore forever, too, that yeah. they deactivated nuclear weapons in Montana. He talks about different isotopic ratios of elements. Like there's some stuff in this that really does line up with Lazar. Uh, and that's a question I have for you of like, I think last time you were here, you thought you were saying you, you tend to think Lazar is a fabulist, but that element 115 stuff, he talks about totally uh, unknown propulsion technologies. Lazar got into that whole gravity wave propulsion system, multiple crafts. I don't know. Console us. What what yeah. stands out to you from what we just vomited in there or didn't? Well, just on the Lazar point, if you recall what I mentioned last time was that I believe Lazar is a fabulist, meaning he's he's lying, but that the substance of what he's talking about may be mm. true. Um, so that's what I was, okay. I was getting last time, um, which I think is still my position, okay. uh, given Grush's claims. Um, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Matt's like, a- dude, I don't want to <laughs> bury myself by talking about this crazy stuff, like giving these guys, like, I could see how no, this no, could no. get real sideways. So no, I, well, this is where like, I get back to like principles of reasoning, trying to be rational, appraising evidence, no matter how crazy the claim. It's like, all right, get back to first principles. One of the one of the difficulties with this whole subject is that it is very psychologically hard to be a Bayesian, right? Because there are sort of 
um, it's like a step function. It's like you're in a world where nothing in this entire regime has anything like an elevated credence. It is just the normal world. Humans are alone. Nothing weird is happening, right? Um, once you start updating from that claim to parts of claims that are in this other bucket of things, like crafts have uh, have been recovered, reverse engineering has occurred, right? Net, like psychologically, you think you're just tripping over a little bit into just mm. saying, I'm just, I'm just going a little bit far into the forest. I'm just saying that, yeah, David Fravers probably a reliable witness and yeah you get multiple sensors detecting these objects underwater in the atmosphere or out of in outer space yeah being detected with high resolution intelligence systems characterizing their performance you know at a degree you know, with a level of resolution that is hard to uh, explain uh or with indicating performance characteristics that are hard to explain um mike just put it lightly you can sort of rationally sort of put like you know, follow that path right and and start to update credences on Maybe there are some weird alien robots flying around, you know, in our in our in our skies. And then you'd want to, you know, okay, accommodate yourself to that, to that set of propositions. Now he's coming in and saying, not just that, but that actually they've cracked, uh, crashed. And they have this multiple, those multiple morphologies. And that, you know, that, you know, he even like hints at like agreements being made, right? Just like yes. absolutely bonkers things, right? Um, which sounds bonkers from the perspective of nothing in that world is true. But like, if you're truly being Bayesian, you're saying, all right, if I have updated my credences on, if any one one of those things is true. Yeah. Like if you, if you ascribe a reasonably high credence to the the prop, to the proposition that non-human intelligence based technical vehicles are in our physical presence, right. Then it's not like that much of a stretch to think we have physical possession of one of those objects. Like if they're real and they're here, it's like, all right, well, it, like you have to explain how we got a hold of them, why they would crash if they're so advanced, et cetera, et cetera. But like once you've adopted the, the once you've adopted the position with a reasonable credence that they're real and they're here, us having possession of them isn't that crazy, right? Relative to that being your prior that you've updated on. And then once you've updated on that prior that we now have physical possession of these objects, you're like, well, these are objects that either have pilots or don't have pilots. Right. That's it. There's only two possibilities. Right. So they have to ascribe a credence to the proposition. Either they're entirely robotic drones with no pilots or they have pilots. Put your credences across both those propositions. Prima facie, before I heard Grush, I would say much more likely to be robots, much more likely to just be like alien drones. If I ascribe a high credence to that original proposition. But now he's saying we've actually recovered, you know, dead pilots. That, okay. Oh, my God. But, but, but now I have to just rebalance with respect to that part of the of the Bayesian tree. Now I have to right. say, all right. Well, at least some of them, according to this guy, have pilots in them. Okay, interesting, right? But again, like, this is where people, because they haven't followed that Bayesian trajectory, right? It's like, when you put out the idea of bodies, it's like, that is insane. That is an absolutely absurd thing to state. But I I, I don't know, maybe I'm just like, inured to the insanity of the world because I've just seen lots of insane things over my life. <laughs> and I'm just like, the world is absurd. The world is weird. The world doesn't necessarily conform to what you think it should be. It just is. And you have to like take it at face value and rationally appraise, you know, circumstantial evidence with a reasonable background set of priors that you you constantly reinvestigate over time, right? You don't never take anything as entirely for certain, right? Um, yeah. And so the the point I really want to drill into though on this whole subject, which is I think gets lost a bit in like the drawing implications, right? It's like, okay, I'm not gonna be able to want to convince anyone whether to believe Grush or not. You can, you know, everyone can make their own judgments. What I find more interesting to explore among lots of these questions is like, okay, 
taking it seriously and then examining different facets of what what would be true in that world, right? And one facet that I think is underexplored is the reason to keep this a secret, right? Mm. Which I actually I love think- that idea. Like, why would you keep this a secret? And there's like the traditional government conspiracy. They don't want to let, you know, everyone know there's another top dog, you know, undermine society and religion, whatever. There's another which is just, you know, they want to engineer the technology to get rich and create their own asymmetric advantages, yada, yada. The other is it might be really dangerous, right? <laughs> like, it just might be really, really bad to like let people yeah. figure out. It could be part and of an agreement. Or it could be, I mean, it could, and this, I mean, they're not, I mean, again, we're like, if we're talking about that, 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 that analogy of the yeah. clearing, like we are, I way just off. jumped ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We're for I got sure too are. deep. I want a hundred well, meters we're, in. We're like, we're just, we're, we're stipulating for the purposes of this analytical discussion. We're, we're now paradropped into some part of the dark forest and, you know, we're just like <laughs> exploring, exploring the ideas here. Um, but one, but some of the things that have been said, not just from Grush, but from the reporter that has talked to him and other sources named Ross Coulthard. So some of this is anchoring on what Ross has said. Um, so it's not like entirely just I'm just making it up. It's like, all right, now it's someone who's reporting information that, you know, again, ascribe a credence to it uh, as as you evaluate it. But the substance of this claim is that these things, if if you follow the story, were captured, were taken possession of, we're starting to figure this out, starting in the, in the early 30s. What what was humanity doing in the early 30s? Working on we nukes. Were figuring out, we were figuring out... Um, you know, fundamental physics. We're really figuring out what became the defining paradigm of, of, mm. of, of modern physics um, in the 20s and 30s. We were figuring out quantum mechanics and general relativity. And as, in the course of doing those investigations in the 30s, Enrico Fermi, for example, is one, one individual who also was Italian at the time and was, was in Italy in the 30s, was the one who figured out nuclear physics. Like, oh, like, there, there are, there are, we know how the structure of the atom works. And we know, oh, what if we actually took certain heavy elements and we smashed them into each other Sufficiently high velocities that maybe if we get a critical mass density, you can create a runaway chain reaction that using calculations from um, Einstein equals MC squared, right? The old traditional uh, formula that that unlocks huge energy that we can convert potentially into power sources or weapons. And we did very quickly under the pressures and constraints of World War II. We turned what was basically entirely theoretical physics knowledge 10 years into world historical changing weapons and technology. Um, I, I see that as a lesson that humanity has kind of um, forgotten, which is that uh, new physics knowledge unlocks degrees of freedom mm -hmm. that you can exploit with technology uh, that can create a step function in what is available to you as a technological civilization, right? And we saw this with electromagnetism, where you just spin, you know, magnets and coils and generate, you know, power to do to to, to light our cities. Industrial revolution, burning chemicals to power steam engines then we had another step function with nuclear weapons and unlocking quantum mechanics give us integrated circuits and now we have a modern technological civilization that is fundamentally downstream of physics right so i take seriously the uap question because not because of lots of other interesting things but in, in particular it's like a proof of concept that some other civilization figured out physics that we don't understand and then they and they, they leverage that physics knowledge to create technology that gives them what appears to us like magical sure. capabilities. So I right? guess, well, yeah, just so to interrupt you. Is, yeah. Yeah. No, what I was going to ask is, so I, where I thought you were going for a second was if we invent a new physics that is not, you know, a the rest of the world is not apprised of, it's very possible that this could be something um, of origin from some deep state black project potentially, which I mean, along the Bayesian probability set, 
even now still seems like maybe the more reasonable way to approach this possibly. I mean, because the idea that some other trust or some more other uh, alien civilization has invented this technology has traveled probably mm-hmm. thousands of light years, hundreds of light years, whatever it is to get here. I mean, assuming this technology is what they say, maybe that's not out of the realm of possibility, but it seems like the probability set is still probably on the side of we've invented some technology that we're keeping secret. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, they're not mutually exclusive, I would say, right? So there's like four possible explanations that exhaust the space of explanations for UAPs. Like one, we're being, uh, uh, we're, we're victims of systematic error or, you know, just mistaken, right? Like all of our sensors, all of our reports, all these individuals, they're just confused. They're right. mistaken. The second is systematic deception or manipulation that some group, for whatever reason, is investing lots of amounts of resources in making us believe that these things are real. And, to, and for whatever purposes, but there's some group that has the intent and capability to systematically deceive us as a mass public to believing something like this is happening. The third is that it's real technology, but that it's a secret human technology, right? To your point that mm-hmm. we uh, we had some aspect of physics and we really wanted to keep it super secret. So we built these crazy devices. We only kept them in the, in the bunker for, you know, a crazy, you know, like, you know, strategic events like we're going to go to war with china we need to bring this thing out of the box so we need to like give china a hint that maybe we have this you know ace in the hole yeah, that's what i was sh- just going to ask you like what would be the reason for if three was the case like why would we mm-hmm. want i mean it seemed like what they were doing up until this point was going well like just allow the crazy <laughs> ufo people to be the crazy ufo <laughs> people let them you know do their own thing why bring this out into the open in this manner yeah so it's it's if, if, if you're trying to like construct a Prior for scenario three, you get them motivated with the most plausible story. The most plausible story would be we figured out some aspect of physics in the post post World War II era that like give us a clue into something like what could be the next nuke, and we learn the lesson of the 30s and 40s, which is that whoever figures out the next physics is going to have a strategic military advantage. And you pour lots of money in super secret projects to figure out how to exploit that known physics. You then manipulate most of public physics away from that that trajectory. I mean, Eric, this is sort of Eric Weinstein's thesis: is that hmm. we figured out something to do with general relativity and gravity in the '50s, and then it just sort of like it, it disappeared. And then in the '70s, you know, we sort of got distracted with string theory and physics. Theoretical physics has basically been stalled for 50 years. Under under on the scenario three explanation, there's no non-human intelligence, and in that just narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, of scenario three, it is all secret government projects leveraging breakthrough physics to create an asymmetric military capability that they kept in the dark for hmm. decades, only to bring out in a geopolitical environment where their hegemonic power is challenged. In which case, you see China rising in power. They might have a conventional overmatch in the South China Sea. So we're going to slowly start to leak the fact that actually we have other capabilities that China didn't interesting work plan. And we're going to correlate that disclosure timeline with the timeline associated with China's ambitions in Taiwan, which all conveniently sent around 2027, et cetera. Um, that's, how, that's how I would construct a story to explain. It doesn't explain the fact that people were seeing these reports in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s that like yeah. you have now fully functioning craft that are doing these crazy things very soon after supposedly like that's you're imagining a quite a, of, a, of a quick jump from, yeah. you know, like, you know, what are pretty primitive planes in World War Two to like, sh- like Tic Tacs. Like that's let that's a that's a bit of a leap, right? Which makes you think, okay, scenario three and scenario four aren't entirely exclusive, right? In fact, you could construct a hypothesis that if scenario four is true, non-human technology, this represent new APs represent non-human technology, that well, governments of the world would really want to figure out how that works and would want to try to emulate it in secret programs. Mm-hmm. 
that's what I would do. Um, and you would treat those things as like, uh, at least at the level as how you currently treat like nuclear secrets. So we have an entire separate classification regime for nuclear secrets that's run by the Department of Energy. Um, there's a, you have to get a whole separate clearance for nuclear secrets. And they have, you know, uh, things like restricted data um, for nuclear weapons design, the function and design and purpose of a nuclear weapons. That's all separately compartmented, separately um, controlled from intelligence sources and methods, information, top secrets. Um, you would put like anything to do with like figuring out the physics behind these objects, you would you would put that under probably a, a classification regime much closer to how you protect nuclear physics because the the dashed line between nuclear physics and nuclear weapons, you would assume is a similar dashed line between whatever the physics of these objects is and whatever weapons could be engineered right. as a result. And if you don't fully understand like the physics, you don't fully understand like if it could be used to power a ship, can it be used to create a weapon? You don't know that. So your presumption as 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 a you know as an intelligence military service would be this is as this is as as a strategic secret as exists and we will do whatever is necessary to protect this secret it is it is the most important thing to protect not just for us national security but for potentially you know humanity security right like you let that genie out of the box you know like we're we're worried about that with ai right now and it's apparently a topic of yep safe discord to worry about runaway artificial superintelligence that you know, some some scientists are going to engineer some technology in a box, and that technology is going to escape the box and turn us all into paperclips, right? That's like a serious like belief system that's motivating a whole bunch of anxiety yeah. among techno elites and politicians to regulate AI. Um, that's like that's considered like a uh, socially acceptable topic of analysis and policy to discourse. The idea that we might have figured out or might have um, uh, encountered uh, or you know uh, might be dealing with some advanced technology that indicates advanced physics, it could be a similar existential risk to humanity. We can't talk about that. That's taboo. That's fringe. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like, there seems to be as much circumstantial evidence now, especially post-Grush, that we can empirically investigate. It's like, we can get to the bottom of, this, of these claims. We can go to those lo locations. We can pressure Congress to go so run this down. Where are you landing on this, just on this distribution mm -hmm. as far as uh, after, you know, post-Grush, you laid out those four possibilities for this. Where are you putting your most most of your credence on these four points? Um, I'm uh, probably ninety percent on number four. Wow, that's a that's a statement right there. Yeah, but you could also, I mean, you could also posit that we number four is correct. We have been backwards engineering these things, and now we're trying. I mean, the the reasoning for coming out like this at this point, you could draw all kinds of different conclusions to, but it could also be having to, it could be related to China and their rise as well. Like we're trying to say, Hey, look, we have backward engineered this stuff. We do have the ability to use it at some level. And I mean, that could also be playing into this geopolitically. Yes. And that's actually where I find it interesting, not just from like an intellectual, but from a geopolitical perspective, because if you, if you grant all this is true, it doesn't stay in the box, right? It's just like, oh, it's a nice and cool, you know, the aliens are a real thing. It's like, uh-oh, now I have to factor this into uh, lots of other um, sort of analytical questions that, you know, I, I need to professionally evaluate, right? Yeah, Which is that like, was going to be one of my questions was whether this is a legit risk scenario you've brought into your consulting practice. And it sounds like, even though it's not... I mean, I'm not talking to... I'm not, no, I mean, the, the clients, again, <laughs> the clients have very tactical problems, right? Their job is to figure out their network architecture. This is number one when you consult. Like, all right, have you thought about aliens yet? <laughs> have you, do you, 
Hey, Bud Light, have you guys thought through Mulaney and then gotten to Aliens to make sure Bud Light survives the next 10 years? I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I, I, I chatted with Hugh Hendry last week, right, you know, the on, on his podcast, and we, we went through this question. And it was like a serious, like, like financial question. It's like, how would you price that in the markets, right? Like, how would you price this? Like, what, what economic um, uh, decisions get 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 affected by this and it's it's hard to think through right like and it depends i guess this is a whole separate conversation like if you were trying to like bet on this right like make, make a wager and i thought about this like if i had reasonably high credence that something like this is true and that importantly i can believe that it's true but it's irrelevant right it's whatever what the market believes is true right so you're really yeah. making a statement about what what do you think the median credence level is and what do you think that's going to change over what period of time uh, and then what financial assets would likely change in value as a result of that change in beliefs over that particular proposition? Like That's yeah. an interesting hey, question. I, wanna, I think this is an important uh, yeah. question just to parlay into. You said 90% number four, but that doesn't really include this probability set at all, whereas this is true or not true. So I don't want to I don't want people to say, oh, Matt says this is 90% true. I think you were just choosing number four as out of those four options. Do you th do you think this is generally true overall or is this just a smokescreen? Well, if those are the only four possible options, and I'm putting like the the, the mass of my of my credences as like a lump. I'm putting ninety percent of that lump on number four, okay. right? As as that as the proposition that UAPs represent non-human technology that's physically in our presence, right? That's like the proposition, ninety percent. The, the the that I wouldn't say I'm ninety percent on all of Grush's claims, right? Mm. Which which are further down the Bayesian tree, right? Yeah. Like this it's like like this is like the root claim. That UAP is a non-human technology and they're real and they're physically, you know, in our presence. Like that's like the root claim of 90%. Then I have like a decay gotcha. that goes pretty far, I'd say, down below 50% on these claims like bodies are real and we've successfully on you know re reverse engineered these things. I have very, very low credence that we've successfully reverse engineered these things. So uh, uh, one question on this topic, because for blokes like us the Lazar story is fascinating and we didn't get into it a ton the last time you were on here, but in terms of, you know, Lazar's claims of being in area S4 near area 51 reverse engineering propulsion technology to the physics stuff he talked about, he's a, he was a physicist or so he claims working on gravity wave propulsion, uh, effectively claiming that you can bend space time or that these non-human technologies can bend space time and effectively move the craft great distances instantaneously he talked about potentially being aware of beings. I think he called them grays seeing, I think he said nine craft. How does that line up with the Grush story? Have you changed your mind at all on Lazar? And if you, if you are suggesting that Lavar Lazar's himself kind of full of shit is the notion there that he just got access to some program or some information and sort of made up a story that lines up with, with intelligence that he got somewhere else. Just give us a brief Lazar take right now on your end. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, like, it's like, we have Grush now. I don't know why you need Lazar. Like, like, Grush, like, <laughs> yeah. like, like Grush is infinitely more credible and much more willing to dedicate, you know, right. like, energy to than Lazar. But if you want to play, like, like, the historical game of, like, do we need to vindicate Lazar from all of the shit he got? I don't think so. I think he's fundamentally a liar. I think he's a, I think he's a, um, you know, he's, he's, a, he's making stuff up. Um, but if you're trying to explain how he got to the claims he made, like he was in the place where he was, he probably was a recipient of second and third hand rumors in that area. Mm. So like, if you assume the Grush's claims are true, maybe there was some stuff happening out, you know, in Groom Lake, right? Yeah. Like maybe that underlying story was true. Maybe like rumor mill got out there and 
he's a guy who's like, I can turn this into a personal thing. And and then he spins a tale that has um, elements of truth that he's heard through, you know, the bar conversations and in, in that in that in that location. And then he sort of spins it, spins a tale. I'm just curious, um, what yeah. is it? What is it about Lazar that makes you think that this is a, a tall he tale? Education records. Um, you know, he's he's okay. always like imp. Um, I don't know, like again, <laughs> like, they were just trying to muddy the waters. Hey, let's not be so harsh on pimps here, dude. Yeah, respect. It strikes me that like, yeah, people anchor so much on Lazar personally, and they think that like so much stands or falls with his personal credibility. I think he's irrelevant to the conversation. I think people, especially that have heard the Lazar story, now hear this, and there's so many parallels that they're like, oh shit, maybe Lazar was legit after all. But, but I think there's also many, many other cases of people that, you know, have come forward with claims in keeping with Grush's claims. But they were not bombastic about it. They just sort of, you know, either on their just whispered to somebody or, you know, whatever. I've just said, yeah, well, I did this weird thing. I was on this program and then and then it dies. Right. But Lazar, because he created a whole, you know, mythology around himself and he did all these interviews. Right. Like he's the one that's like the canonical reference point for comparing yeah. comparing Grush's like claims. I think that's unfair to Grush. Right. To, to put Lazar up against him is like, all right, well, how do these two like I, it's just I would like throw him off the screen and be like, you now have someone with much more professional bona fides coming forward, being vouched for by people inside the government that said he is who he says he is. He had the accesses that he says he had, and he's coming forward through the legitimate whistleblower process to go through Congress and the ICIG. Like, is it an entirely different universe of like credibility and seriousness that Grush's claims warrant attention to yeah. than Lazar's? And so it's like, you're just mixing oil and oil and oil and water by putting those two together. And and I think it's also worth saying we have to factor in potentially wayward uh, narcissistic incentives. You come out with claims like this. Let's take Lazar and let's also I know Grush has a totally different pedigree, but let's throw him in here, too. You come out with claims like this. You're going to be a hero to this fanboy manic UFO community. You're probably going on Joe Rogan. You're going to be in some sense a spotlight, a fringe spotlight kind of for the rest of your life within a certain community. So there there would be incentives and reasons for, say, narcissistic fabulists to make some crazy shit up and send their life on a totally different trajectory. Yeah, but in, in Grush's case, he's testified to Congress under oath. So, I mean, he has put himself in a position where he could get in some deep shit. He can he can uh, maybe mislead some prison inmates if he's if he's full of shit. Yeah, I mean I I've I've known people in the intelligence career like he as thir- to be GS fifteen thirty six years old the positions he was in he was a superstar right like like I mean I'm I'm thirty six right like and if I was doing the government track I would be very happy I'd be like man I really crushed it if I got to be GS fifteen uh, at my age and the positions of access and responsibility that he was in. So he was poised for a really exceptional career inside the government. Yeah, he could have just kept his mouth shut and probably gotten a really plum job as a defense mm-hmm. contractor, you know, gotten a senior government position down the line. You know, he he was like you know, really crushing it in his professional career. And he decided, I'm just going to burn all that. I'm going to burn all that to the ground because he's done. He's done inside yeah. the government. He's, he has to like try to become a real estate agent. And I guarantee you like, the UFO circuit is not going to be as like professionally and uh, financially rewarding as yeah. like where he was already on the trajectory. Don't worry, we'll have him on. We'll have him on uh, BCB UFO, for sure. The UFO circuit. <laughs> he's made a credible signal. He's done the proof of work, right? He's made yeah. a credible signal. He's incurred a very significant personal cost, right? To 
to come up with this information. And so you have to factor that into how you evaluate, you know, his credibility. But I think it's it's fair read that he he gave up a lot to do what he's doing now. Um, yeah. And I think what's very interesting, right, to like, OK, well, what's next? Right. All we have circumstantial evidence, hearsay, no firsthand evidence, no firsthand accounts. Um, so that's where we are. Right. And I think we're at a very interesting moment because now things are kind of in limbo. Right? right. You're like, you know, OK, I had to revise my priors upwards, but am I all the way there? Probably not. Right. And like I I looked at this and I have some other information that means maybe my personal credence is higher than others. But I would expect others not to have credences as high as me. Um, but I would. But then I'm looking for, OK, what other events would, you know, raise the median credence level? Right. And I think there are things that are going to come that will do that. Um, mm. That's what I, that was my next question for you. I wanted some wild speculation because there, Ross uh, Coldheart inferred. I mean, he said this on his podcast, the most recent episode, that he has a lot more information that he's heard from other you know participants that haven't come forward yet. If you had to make a guess, and it sounds like maybe you do have some other information that you don't want to share, but what do you think would potentially be the next thing to drop? Um. Well, I mean, we, we know Grush has said he talked with many other people inside these programs that all gave testimony to the inspector general and that have given testimony to Congress that have gone through a similar deposition, oath taking and disclosure in a in a closed setting. The question is, do they feel like they have the personal protections to do what Grush just did, mm. which is to knock it Epstein? Well, there's, the interesting thing is Grush is, was able to come out and say things that were told to him that um, the DOPSA, the Defense Oversight Prepublication Review Board, said were not classified um, because he was not read into those programs. He never signed those NDAs, right? And it's his hearsay claim. It's not the government saying this is true. It's just saying he's saying these things. We're not saying it's true. Right. You know, we're just giving him permission to speak about things that are not you know, explicitly classified as far as DAPSA is aware of, right? But if there's illegal activities taking place, so like this is kind of the nuance, right? Like you might have m multiple special activity, pro um, special access programs dedicated to foreign technology recovery, reverse engineering, right? Russian space, hypersonic missile satellites. We have special teams go out there, take it, reverse engineer it, right? Everyone kind of expects something like that is taking place. Um, those would be special activity programs, right? How you do that, where they go, how those are programs are organized, what they're focused on, all that would be very classified, legally classified, and SAPs that would be funded and reported to Congress through the appropriate mechanisms. There's a special access program coordinating office, SAPCO, that Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo were actually a part of. SAP, uh, Lou Elizondo was actually the like executive secretary for it, um, very highly claimed person. Um, and those programs get briefed up to the at least the gang of eight. Sometimes, depending on the nature of the SAP, it gets briefed to the other parts of the, the members of the uh, Hipsy and, and, and uh, SSCI, his allegation uh, to the ICIG that was deemed urgent credible is that there were UAP-related activities being conducted under legal SAPs, but that were themselves illegal, meaning not authorized by charter and were in represented in misappropriation of funds for that legal SAP. He also alleges um, that there are uh, separate programs that are not covered by a legal SAP, that are not being officially disclosed to um, through even, even unacknowledged waived special access programs where they're verbally briefed to the Gang of Eight, maybe even the, the Gang of Four. He's saying that that hasn't happened. And so those things are not legally valid classified information. To reveal them isn't violating mm. uh, a mm. non-disclosure agreement, not violating oath to protect classified information. Because the information is about a program that isn't legal. 
It's not a real SAP. It's not a SAP that's legally authorized. It's not a SAP that anyone has. And in particular, the, the non-disclosure agreements that were covered by that whistleblower protection, which is why it's so strategically critical, specifically released any individual who had signed an NDA relating to UAP-related programs that were not properly disclosed to Congress. You see why this is... Mm, that, yes. language, that language was put in there for a reason, because of these individuals. Yeah. And you can also start to understand why, when he's being interviewed, he's tiptoeing around different things. You're like, wait, why what? is he sharing so much about this okay. and then nothing about this? And and is that some of that makes sense that he's tiptoeing between what are legit saps and, and aren't and, and just kind of navigating this whole web of what he can and can't share to remain partially above water as a whistleblower? I Yeah, that's my read is wow. that um, the things he's saying are are reports of of activities that were being conducted um, illicitly, not under the proper remit right. of an authorized legally reported SAP charter. And so therefore, he's not violating any oaths to protect classified information by revealing those, those pieces of information. This is also why, like Senator Gillibrand, her statements are very in, in, you know, interesting, where she says, if there have been rogue SAPs, I need to get to the bottom of it. If there's taxpayer, I mean, there's like the alien story, but there's also just like the bureaucratic, like, yeah. good government thing, which is like, okay, we have a system of government that authorizes certain activities. There's certain regimes of disclosure, accountability, and transparency. We protect sources and methods. We protect secret programs that are, you know, valid uses of that money and those legal authorities granted to the government, uh, the executive branch, military and intelligence services um, by Congress. But there's a condition. You have to report those activities and account, account for the money to Congress. <laughs> like, this is how you have checks and balances in a democratic system. Like, fundamentally, his allegation at the root of it isn't like this whole alien thing. Like, people get, you know, that's like the sexy thing. It's that people broke the law. People stole money, basically. People didn't follow the proper legal oversight regimes that we have to make sure, like we saw this in the 60s and 70s when, you know, aspects of the government go out of their remit, right? That get out of get out ahead of government accountability. And we had church committee hearings and, you know, there was a lot of crazy shit that we found out that the government was doing. <laughs> like yeah. we th found about things like MKUltra. We found about things like LSD experiments on American yeah, citizens. That's a whole rabbit hole I've been down, and that is nuts. I mean, but like, but... that's the lesson of history. Like, you get everyone gets caught up in the conspiracies around all that stuff. But like for me, it's just it's a it's a historical fact, and it's a matter of just like political economy. That when you put a lot of money and a lot of power in a certain you know institution, and you don't like check it, you don't force it to account to an, a third party, it can go off the rails. It just like that's what humans do, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is just like okay, this happened to be on this topic of you know some crazy bonkers subject. Right. It's like it's a typical human story of you know institutions basically insulating themselves, protecting their own interests, um, subverting you know uh, oversight and accountability on their activities. And you know the job of a democratic society is to like come in there and be like, no, no, like my money. <laughs> I don't yep. want you to like siphon it off and do not tell my representatives what's what you do with it. Like, that's a basic story. And yeah. and maybe it takes something with this big of implications and that's this fascinating and scary or what, however you put it, to take down some red tape, to shed some light on some black programs. And it sounds like that's what some of these senators are up to. They're like, let's rip some of this tape down. Let's get the spotlights out. And if we learn about some fucking aliens in the process, <laughs> we're in for it. I'm strapped that's where in. The, that's the funniest part of this whole thing is that if if this is where it's going to happen, on, on probably the most important issue that's ever crossed the line of humanity, like that there are other entities out there that are intelligent and they're here visiting us. 
that's uh it's pretty wild this whole story is so off the wall it's crazy and i know we might i mean i got a little bit more time but like one of the last i think people so like tactical next steps i think there might be some hearings there's already talk about that i think the house i'm a little i'm not as happy with the house like the house is full of people that i think are really you know jazzed about this topic but are not necessarily the most credible um vehicles for this information like they have a lot of other political baggage and I also worry about the tendency of our political system to take something like this and like warp it, just like we saw Bitcoin potentially get warped in mm. the political uh, yeah. culture wars that, you know, you can immediately imagine people that are naturally disposed to distrust government, to think it's all deep state conspiracy, to try to pick seize on this issue as a cudgel to whack the government and to sort of fuel the wider swath of conspiracy thinking that prevails in our society. And I really want to resist that. Like, I'm not, a cons- I, I, it's like, it's like this is something that needs to be examined seriously and like have like oversight um, from like lawfully mandated investigative bodies. But I do not want this to become like this a uh, fuel about undermining further trust in our in our democratic institutions. Like I'm really like I'm really scared that like if we come out and people just be like, oh, yeah, see, like we told you, like the deep state is doing all this stuff and we need to like take them all down. And that becomes fuel for, you know, much more radical like um, political activities that, that I would not be in favor of. Um, I, it's hard. Like, I mean, this is such a crazy, it's just such a crazy idea that it, it's hard for me to believe that anybody would take away from this. Like the, the, the wonder of what is out there at this point that you are getting revealed to you. I mean, whatever's going on in government is such a secondhand backstory to that in my mind that I, I it's hard to believe that people would even really care about that dude the thing is though the the thing is though a lot a lot of people just don't care like it's almost like people have been completely desensitized to proper research information gathering and rationality and i i get it to a certain extent like in a lot of ways i feel small i feel helpless i feel ill-equipped to really research this stuff and make good judgments and i think good information has been washed down to such an extent and things have gotten so crazy in the say political sphere and, and main news outlet sphere and and whatever else you want to lump in there. that a lot of people just have their brain completely turned off to what maybe 50 years ago would have been mind blowing information. I mean, even sharing it, this at the firehouse, trying to give spark notes, a couple people are interested and other people are like, okay, whatever. I don't give a shit. I'm like, you don't give a shit about (laughs) like what the, What the fuck do you give a shit about then? I I was talking to some people and, you know, they were just like, okay, if this comes, like, what do you expect? I'm like, I expect a wow shrug. I Mm. expect wow. I've got to go drop my kids off at school tomorrow. Right. Until it's until it changes their daily life. Like, what what do you like? People are gonna be like, yeah, it's it's weird. It's like people just lack imagination at all. Like, they're just they're just going to stare at Instagram and, you know, flip through the next. All right. What's next? And this is why I do have some sympathy for those in the government that might want to slow this down, right? Yeah. Like, I don't think they, you know, I don't think if you ask the folks in the Gang of Eight, if you ask Jill LeBrand or Rubio, who I think are the folks most plugged into some of the stuff, Mark Warner, they would want this to, like, all come tumbling out like we saw in the last week with Grush making these wild claims. Like, that's our political system, like, you know, in general, like, we accommodate slow change, right? And I think if you're saying... You're putting them in a very difficult position of like wanting to drive transparency on this issue in a serious, deliberative manner. But if you force them to to like reckon with these very, you know, like bombastic claims, it's their their natural impulse is going to be to like 
distance yeah. and deny because they're just not ready. Like the political system isn't ready to like uh, accommodate that, right? And so I I get that. Like, and I think there's a lot of impatience among. There's a whole subculture, just like a UFO. Like, there's an anthropological similarity, sociological similarity between Bitcoin communities and UF and the UAP communities. Like, they all have this like somewhat in group jargon and and lore and history and sort of um influencers and podcasts and they also have like uh you know a vision for the evolution of the world that's aligns to their political kind of eschatology that yeah organization mm-hmm. or disclosure is coming and you know it's ironic that like Gillibrand is like like both like co-sponsor legislation with um Lummis on the crypto stuff as well as you know leading the charge on the on the UAP stuff I don't think as much of a maybe that's just a coincidence um but uh <laughs> but yeah like this is the sense of in these communities are somewhat insular they have constructed a mythology. They've constructed a sort of grand set of um, expectations that, you know, it's always impatient for the next big thing, the next big thing of news, the big whistleblower. Blah, blah. And I think it's like now that it, this is sort of happening, they're all like, you know, freaking out. Um, but I'm like, I step back and I'm like, what's good for society at large? Like, what can our political system take? What is the Joe Bob in the street who's got to like pay their taxes and buy into civic society, right? You don't want to just like destabilize these things. Like, it's like, it's like, that's just, that's just, you know, you're just burning the house down, right? Like, I don't yeah. know, I'm, I'm fundamentally more like, all right, how do we, like, we need to be, we need to have, you know, we need to reckon with this if this is true, and we need to, like, do this in a deliberative manner, um, but I don't want to be reckless about it, and I'm not, like, cheerleading, like, just because it's this crazy, interesting thing. It's like, if I'm taking it seriously, there's financial implications, social implications, geopolitical implications, and you don't just, like, flip the table over and be like, yep deal yeah, with it totally yeah. agree and 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 to wrap some of this episode fu- episode full circle because we started off injecting a dose of skepticism towards bitcoin mm-hmm. which is what this podcast is all about and i do encourage the listener to to blunt my arrows i threw a little bit ago be skeptical about this look at it with neutrality but you should start assessing the evidence bold claims do need backup as i said earlier and there's a lot of utterly fantastical stuff that's been said by this guy and other people it violates everything I and most people have ever known and ever experienced firsthand, and we haven't seen all the evidence. We've heard claims of the evidence. So I'm still waiting. I'm waiting to see stuff, but I am investigating and looking into it, and I think that's the proper demeanor. I think to completely ignore this right now, if you're a curious human being, is a mistake. Yeah, I'd say like just knowing what the uncontested facts of the situation are, you either have senior intelligence military officials that are delusional that have been in the grip of some crazy conspiracy yep that is utterly detached from reality and that needs to be investigated because why are these people in positions of responsibility right why are they handling some of the most you know sensitive information yep there's a significant disinformation program being run by people who are trying to make us think this well that yep. needs to be investigated why are they manipulating public opinion in this manner possibly illegally or it's true and it's like either scenario. None of those give, scenarios are great. <laughs> I mean, and they all need to be investigated. Yes. So it's like, I don't see how anyone can hold a position that there's nothing to see here. There's nothing that warrants serious investigation. Yeah. I think the untested facts warrant, no matter what your underlying beliefs of the, 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 the true, um, you know, reality behind like what we're observing in these public statements and these reports needs to be investigated by, you know, institutions that have some shred of, of of accountability and legitimacy. And at this point, there's not too many of those. It's the mainstream media. It is Congress. It is it is lawful investigative bodies like the inspector generals. It's like we don't have many like somewhat neutral 
third-party groups who can like take these fantastical claims and run them to ground and try to adjudicate what is, you know, a, I think a very important issue. <laughs> so like that's my position is like you should be in favor of serious investigations that are politically neutral, that are rigorous, that are done in public and get to the bottom of it because we're in a very unhealthy position right now where it's like you're in like, like this limbo land and everyone can kind of read in the Rorschach test of whatever conspiracy. It's all a psyop. It's all a distraction. The government is trying to, you know, come up with the aliens because they expect, you know, big financial crisis. Like everyone sees this event, sees this reporting and then layers into their existing ideologies. Yep. And we just think, you know, we need, we, you know, you need something a little bit more. And that, that's fueled by having, by being in this very awkward limbo land. Yep. You need to resolve it. And I think that's the only path for it. Just when we thought things couldn't get any stranger, aliens show up. <laughs> Matt, really appreciate it, man. That was was a hell of an episode. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Anything you want to say here as we part, hand people off to any of your work? Well, uh, yeah, so I find this, this topic interesting. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't get, you know, sometimes folks get too worked up over, like, get emotionally invested in lots of things. I Maybe I'm just somewhat... I just I'm detached from a lot of these things. Um, so just pay attention, treat everything lightly. Um, don't freak out, right? Like just don't let like the feed overwhelm you. Um, and I, I know I have a day job and I focus a lot on solving like tactical problems. And I think these are very interesting issues. Uh, you know, cybersecurity, geopolitics, emerging technology that you know keep me up at night. And uh, yeah, the UAP thing if it comes in from the left side of the the the, the house and starts coming into the center of the discourse. I don't know. I just feel like I need to be prepared um, for, uh, you know, lots of left tail, left tail events. Um, yeah. So yeah, hit me <laughs> up or at Matthew underscore Pines where that's where I sort of riff on these sorts of topics. So yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man, Josh. I hope this isn't our last time with Matt, but uh, we'll give Chris a break here for uh, a few months at the very least. We'll <laughs> and, uh... At least this is the last time we speak to uh, Chris prior to the alien disclosure, right? <laughs> Chris is Chris is if you want to if you want to you know separate your 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 job and and consulting from this Chris is the you UAP have an alter version ego. Yep. yeah and Matt's yeah. the Matt's the you know consultant version I'll go anon yeah appreciate you yeah thanks for having me thanks for listening let us know what you thought about us devoting so much time to the UAP topic did you like it? Should we explore ideas from time to time that are far afield of Bitcoin, or should we know our role and focus on Bitcoin only? Leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or YouTube. And we are on Fountain, our value-for-value value podcast platform of choice. Check us out there, and we will see you next week.